The Sierra Club aims to sue the Trump Tower for alleged environmental violations. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about news of the week from the local housing market, including a forecast for what was described as muted demand for city homes through 2030. Basically what they said is that through 2030, demand for homes in major cities is likely to be as much as 10% lower than it would have been had we not gone through the pandemic and all the changes that it brought. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, July 20th. Secure your business accounts and start earning more with a Wintrust MaxSafe account. With MaxSafe, you get up to 15 times the standard FDIC personal protection. That's right, 15 times the protection with the liability to secure up to $3.75 million per account holder. Now that's banking as it should be. Call 833-MAX-SAFE to talk with a local Wintrust banker today. That's 833-MAX-SAFE. Peace of mind is just a phone call away. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC. See FDIC.gov for deposit insurance coverage rules. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hello, Dennis. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. As ever, tons to get into, so let's dive right in. Um, Let's start with this uh, McKinsey forecast, uh, predicting muted demand for city homes through 2030. That is, uh, that's a pretty long, long look ahead. Tell me about this. That, I think, is really interesting. Yeah, you know, we've all, as you know, we're in the fourth year of work from home and all the sorts of effects of the pandemic and the response to the pandemic have been around for quite a while. And the question really is, how long will those effects last? This McKinsey report, the residential piece of it that I covered, is actually a part of a larger report that I think you talked about on here uh, with somebody else earlier. And that was McKinsey's look at the effect on downtowns of the pandemic and and how that's going to last over time. And what McKinsey said about commercial real estate is that about $800 billion of value will have been wiped out of commercial real estate in major cities around the world. They had a piece uh, of that report where they talked about, you know, here's the implication for residential real estate, not only immediately in downtowns, but in neighborhoods that feed into downtowns and neighborhoods that are satellites of downtown areas. Basically, what they said is that through 2030, demand for homes in, in those major cities is likely to be as much as 10% lower than it would have been had we not gone through the pandemic and all the changes that it brought. So what they're not saying is demand will be reduced. They're saying it won't grow at the rate it might have. What they found via their Um, surveys and metrics is that demand for city homes will be about what it was in 2019 through 2030. Um, And I think it's important to say that, that they're not saying people are going to run from city homes and there's going to be no demand. They're saying growth is not going to be what it might have been. And in fact, what they said is while a lot of commercial, well, again, the, the report is primarily about commercial real estate, and there is a threat that a lot of commercial real estate in big cities around the world could be sitting empty 
until 2030 or beyond because of what's happened in the past few years. But they did say on the residential side, they said specifically, we're not saying that homes will sit empty because uh, while the value of a commercial property going down may not help it get filled up, the value of a home going down will help it get filled up. And that's something you and I have talked about. You know, maybe we are seeing the beginning of a long-term shift where downtown Chicago becomes more of a neighborhood for artists. And, and we know uh, Lori Lightfoot's plan was to get a lot of affordable housing on, on LaSalle Street. So again, they're not saying nobody's going to buy homes in, in a city, um, but they are saying that the demand will be muted is the term they used. A lot more people who might have decided to live downtown will live in suburbs. And part of that is because offices, more offices will be in suburbs than might have been had we not had the pandemic. It's a pretty interesting report. It's focused on, I think it's nine, what they call superstar cities around the world. Chicago is not one of the superstars. Chicago is in the second tier. Certainly Chicago is a superstar in my heart and in yours. But um, on on this list, compared to places like Tokyo and London, Chicago was in the second tier. Uh, so they started with about nine cities, but they also, in all, they cover about twenty four cities, including Chicago. And and what they said is, you know, this is this is something we can look ahead at if you're planning your real estate career, if you're planning real estate investment, those kinds of things. They're talking about, well, really a ten year horizon because COVID started in 2020. We're talking about seven years out from now, but what will happen in the 2020s as a result of uh, that abrupt change in March 2020? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I think it's like a bigger conversation really about about real estate shifting, you know, in, in much broader ways, right? I've talked with with our colleagues, Danny Ecker and Albie Galoon about this of kind of, you know, what is the future of the office? Will that become housing? Will they become, you know, more experiential? We talked about this a little bit uh, with Michigan Avenue as retail has, has been more focused on e-commerce. What does that mean for the Mag Mild? Is that going to be these more of these like experiential kind of things or museums or art or both? Or, you know, what, what does that look like? And I just think it's an interesting time to watch that shift that, you know, you kind of can't put the genie back in the bottle, like change has already started. So it'll be interesting to see kind of where all that falls. And I don't think any of us would have said this in March 2020, when you thought everybody was going to be back to work in a month or two months. And here we are in the fourth year of some form of work from home. And I think that that concept of an experiential uh, Michigan Avenue, which Albie has written about, and you guys have talked about, that's one of those things that you know, does that have an effect that helps? Does that have an effect on residential real estate? Does it make me more likely to live near Michigan Avenue or does it make, or, or is that primarily going to appeal to the tourist? We don't know. I mean, a lot of people were living downtown near, near Michigan Avenue for the shopping, the dining, those kinds of things. If you're enhancing the entertainment experience, maybe that makes it more likely that as an empty nester, I come in from Hinsdale Lake Forest, whatever it is, and buy a place downtown? Or does it just make it more likely that we drive in for Saturday? Another thing we'll have to revisit down the road. All right, well, talk to me about the U.S. Soccer Federation's two Prairie Avenue mansions. You know, this is such an interesting um, concept. Uh, Two mansions on Prairie Avenue at 18th and Prairie, uh, essentially they have a U-shaped footprint because there was a neighbor between them that's gone. So it's two houses with a 
two very nice grand old houses with a parking lot between them. They are joined. They have sort of a, a U shape because at the back, these two mansions are joined by the coach house. Uh, and both from the 19th century, both one extremely ornate, the Kimball House, which is based on a 14th century chateau in Brittany. As one does, sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, built at right at the corner of 18th and Prairie. And then the other one, the Coleman House, is not as ornate, but it is a very grand old Chicago home. <clears throat> Pardon me, they, neither of them has been residential, or I should say neither of them has been private residential since the 1920s. At various times, one of them was a boarding house or sort of a dormitory. So they've been residential, but they haven't been private homes since the 1920s, both built in the 19th century. Um, and since 1991, they've been owned by the U.S. Soccer Federation. They have been the headquarters of the Soccer Federation. Well, as Danny Ecker reported several months ago, the Soccer Federation is now or has now moved to Wacker Drive. They put these two homes on the market at $4.2 million dollars. Uh, from what I understand from one of the real estate agents, there was an offer on them that didn't really work for the neighbors. She wouldn't be specific, but somebody in the neighborhood told me that she thought it was sort of an event space, uh, restaurant kind of a place, which is something you might do with 29,000 square feet and a parking lot. Um, but neighbors weren't very happy. The deal did not go through. I don't have specifics on that because, again, the agent wouldn't talk to me. So now they're under contract. They just went under contract last week. Uh, and all the agent would tell me is that it is a residential buyer, that uh, the two buildings are not going to be separated. They're not going to be chopped up into condos. This is as she understands it. And again, she represents the sellers but has spoken to the agent for the buyers. The agent for the buyers and the buyers declined to talk to me. Um, so I only have the sketchiest details. The buildings are under a contingent contract, so it's possible the deal doesn't go through. But if it does, and if what the agent told me pans out, and it's uh, essentially one family, I would assume, using this 29,000 square feet of two buildings, then they would be residential for the first time since the 1920s, which is pretty interesting. They're beautiful houses. And as you know, so uh, when the Soccer Federation moved in in the 90s, Prairie Avenue still had a, some old, there was an old, I think it was a Kodak warehouse and very, and there was a National Guard armory and, and uh, some of the houses that are there hadn't been built. The, I think the park hadn't been built. Um, Prairie Avenue had a, a difficult time in the mid 20th century. So putting the Soccer Federation in there probably was to people like, okay, sure, whatever. But now a use like a Soccer Federation, like a restaurant, that sort of thing might not appeal to the neighbors. But uh, you're the family that bought that 29,000 square foot home. Welcome. Here are some brownies I baked. Right, right. Definitely. And there are so many cool houses over there now. I mean, it's really beautiful right there on Prairie Avenue. No matter what direction you're looking, you're going to see something very beautiful and cool. Yeah, it's an interesting mix to go down there and see the historical ones, and some of them are remarkable, and the new ones that have been tucked in. It's a, it's a great area. Yeah, definitely. Well, speaking of very cool historic houses, there's one in Wicker Park uh, that is on the market for $7 million-ish. Tell me about this one. Yeah, so this, this is an interesting one. This, I, I wrote about it when it was for sale back in 2007 when it had just been converted from apartments. Um, it's in far better condition now. This is a, a building on Hoyne. 
that a lot of people know because it's got this, it's red brick. It's got this big second empire mansard roof and a huge turret. It's on an enormous lot uh, at Hoyne and Schiller. Um, Don Wilson is a trader, a, a veteran trader in Chicago. His firm, DRW, shows up in cranes all the time. 1,300 employees, big headquarters in the West Loop. He also uh, has a lot of real estate investments. He bought these buildings. Uh, I'm sorry, he bought that house a couple of years ago. And then separately, he bought that house's former coach house, which at the time was a separate property. Put the two properties together, paid a, a total of about 6.27 million for the two buildings bought separately. Goes before Landmarks and the Wicker Park Committee and says, I'm going to combine them. I'm putting an addition in that will connect the two buildings. The buildings are about 20 feet apart. I'm going to add an in-ground pool. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, an indoor pool with a glass roof. I've got all these plans. Well, he never did any of that. Um, and now it's all for sale. Essentially, in the condition it was when he bought it, it had been. So again, it had been apartments for quite a while. Um, then a couple bought it. They rehabbed it to the nines and it looked fabulous. Don Wilson buys, sorry, that's the main house. Don Wilson buys that, also buys the separate coach house. Um, and as far as I can tell, has not done anything to them. Um, it, it doesn't appear that he moved in, but the listing photos, you can guess that I'm about to say, nobody would talk to me, which I always, the agent wouldn't talk to me. I couldn't reach the seller, but looking at um, a tour video that went up before Wilson bought it when it was for sale the last time and the listing photos that are up now, I gather that he hasn't made changes. Um, the primary change he's made is buying the other building and, and attaching it as one big property. Um, so it's up for about $7 million, $6.95 million. It looks really good. It's beautiful inside. It's got great history. Built in the 1880s for a liquor wholesaler named Henry Rapp as part of well, I shouldn't say as part of because it wasn't an official name. It's what we now think of as Beer Baron Row there in Wicker Park on Hoyne and on Pierce, some of the most fabulous homes in Wicker Park there in those blocks of Hoyne and, and Pierce. And if they're some of the most fabulous homes, this would be sort of the most fabulous of the most fabulous in Wicker Park. It is stunning um, that that mansard roof uh, the turret. When I was there in 2006, 2007, when it was for sale, it was in pretty bad shape. Um, there was sort of a, I can't even figure out how to describe it, but sort of an add-on terrace where I met somebody and talked and sort of felt uh, I probably should sit still because we might fall through. Um, it was not in the condition it is today. <clears throat> it's been massively upgraded. And now for, oh, and one thing I should mention is the lot size in, if, it's one of the biggest in Wicker Park. It's the equivalent of 4.7 Chicago lots, a Chicago lot being 25 by 125. It's a giant piece of land. So we have not talked about Justin Ishbia in a hot minute. So let's, it's been maybe three whole episodes since we've discussed him. So uh, let's talk about how he bought and demolished a $5.7 million house in Lincoln Park. Not the one he, we've been talking about up, up on the North Shore. This is a different one. Yeah, I think people were a little surprised by this. Um, we've said in all the stories about the the work that Justin and Kristen Ishbia are doing in Winnetka, where they've assembled several lots. They're, they're spending about $78 million for land acquisition and construction of a giant house in Winnetka. And most people know that this was sort of caught up in a, in a land swap issue 
with the park district in Winnetka. Well, up there, they have demolished several mansions. But we've said in all of our stories, at the moment, they live in Lincoln Park in a house they paid $12.5 million for. Well, it turns out that there they have also bought a mansion and demolished. So they have a house they paid $12.5 million for, and they bought a lot that's adjacent that had a house that was, they paid $5.7 million for a house that they would tear down and put in a yard and, and playground equipment. Um, so this went from being a $12.5 million estate to an $18.3 million estate once you combine the two properties. Uh, Justin Ishbia did not talk to me for this story, but he has spoken to me in the past about how they have every intention of moving to Winnetka when the big one is built and selling the one in Lincoln Park. So presumably you would sell uh, both this mansion and this lot. Perhaps somebody buys it and puts up a new $5.7 million mansion on it, or they um, keep it as a yard. And here's some interesting news that came this week, Amy. Um, it turns out that Justin and Kristen Ishbia aren't the only Ishbias tearing homes down. The Detroit Free Press reported that Justin's brother, Matt, who's based in Detroit and runs the uh, mortgage company that their father founded, has bought up five lots in a suburb of Detroit and is putting up a gigantic house. So the Ishbia, the Justin and Kristen Ishbia are doing it here in Winnetka and Lincoln Park. His brother is doing it in the suburbs of Detroit. This is quite a family for um, buying up real estate. I was going to say, yeah, I see, a, I see a trend in this family here of buying things up and tearing it down to make it exactly what you wanted. So talk to me now about uh, a house in Old Town that has seen some renovations. You know, this was, this was a really nice house to look at. Um, it's, the original house is from that sort of rebirth of Old Town in the 70s, 80s. Perfectly nice house with kind of an urban take on French provincial mansard roof. Uh, but it was built when we didn't care quite so much about our connection to the outdoors, or I should say when that particular architect and those particular residents didn't care as much for, the, for their connection to the outdoors. So this couple buys it uh, in the 21st century, and they say, man, we've got this great yard out back, but all we really have is windows and uh, sort of a single walkthrough door, what used to be called a man door, a single door. Let's open this whole thing up. So they replace windows and a door with a wall of glass, really, in both the living room and the dining room. They also push the deck out. And their concept was, you know, the indoors and the outdoors meet. The outdoors is an extension of the living space inside. Um, really nicely done. They did some other changes as well. Beautiful landscaping, built a, an absolutely gorgeous staircase. But to me, the big change they made, opening up the back so that, uh, as I said, you know, indoors and outdoors meet. Talk to me about this other house. Uh, this has a pagoda roof that is very cool. I feel like we might have talked about this one before, or was it a house with a, a different house with a pagoda roof? Good eye, Amy. No, it was a different house with a pagoda roof. Same architect. Don Erickson is a really interesting uh, architect. He was a student of Frank Lloyd Wright. I hate to put that at the top because you kind of get tagged with that for the rest of your life. But um, he's he's well he's best known in Chicago for the Indian Lakes Resort in Itasca, which looks like a Frank Lloyd Wright building. That was why he was hired. There's also, if you drive up Ridge, if you go up Ridge in Rogers Park, there's something people call the Birdcage Building, big staircase of wrought iron outside. That's his. But Don Erickson and Dennis Stevens did a lot of several houses with 
these Jamaican roofs. They, they look like pagoda tops. They're inspired, apparently, by buildings they saw in Jamaica. They both lived in houses with these kinds of roofs. Um, Erickson built a few others. There are two we talked about in Winnetka. One family next door bought it, and they were going to tear it down unless somebody would buy it. Nobody bought it, and they did tear it down, unfortunately. And the other was just an absolutely beautiful building farther east in Winnetka that did find a buyer. This latest one is a house in Wooddale, built in 1965. They're asking 519000 for it. It's very interesting. So there are these two pagodas, and I looked around the rest of the subdivision. Nobody else looks like this. Everything else is far more conventional, for both for 1965 and for 2023. And here's this house that looks like two pagodas sitting um, on the lot. One of the pagodas is the roof of the garage. The other is this upswept roof so that like when you're in the living room, in the kitchen, the roof goes up two stories high, curves up above you, sort of like the inside of a tent. It's all lined with pecky cypress, which is sort of rusticated wood, naturally rusticated wood. And then there's a skylight above. It's as if you're in sort of a Jamaican pavilion, Mon, and um, it's, it's just really sharp. And I feel like that was kind of the theme in the other pagoda roof place that we talked about, was kind of had this uh, resort sort of finish to it. Yeah, they, several of them have. And it's, it's just sort of, it was a fun way, you know, to sort of deny winter um, and just bring in something exotic uh, into home design. It's, it's a very cool. I don't, I don't have an exact count of how many Erickson and Stevens built in this style, but I think it's fewer than 10. I know of about six. And there may also be a, um, a commercial building, a former restaurant that they did in the same style. Yeah, I suppose that's one way to deal with Chicago winter is just deny it. Surround yourself with tropical stuff and deny winter entirely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pretend you're in Jamaica. Or then there are the people who get on a plane and go to Jamaica. Yeah, there's that too. There's always that option. All right, well, this other house, I, I have been dying to talk with you all week about this house. Because you use the phrase time warp uh, in the headline for this house. This is in North Park. Tell me about this place that's for sale. I usually call these houses time capsules, but the real estate agent referred to this one as a time warp, and I realized it fits. Um, so this is a house in North Park. A woman is selling it for the estate of her late parents. They bought it in the early 60s and, uh, and of course, held on to it until now. And according to her, the things I'm about to describe were in the house already when they moved in in about 1961. So you go down to the basement, and it is... it's. It's like a classic Chicago rec room, but with this French twist that just kills me. They've got the checkerboard linoleum floor. They've got the big photo mural that makes you feel like you're outside. Looks like a meadow fireplace with um, fake tree branches over it. A lot of that you would see in other rec rooms. But behind the bar, there's this mural of sort of a Paris street scene. Again, painted sometime before the early 1960s painted by the previous owners, the owners prior to the people who've owned it since the early 60s. And it, it must have been very racy at the time. You have a police officer in, in a Parisian costume looking at a woman who's in, like her skirt is a little bit lifted and she's sort of looking flirtatiously at a sailor who's looking back at her. Also in this scene is a poodle. So what you've got is a man and a woman looking at each other um, flirtatiously, seductively, <laughs> and, a, and a cop looking at them. This 
1961, you can just imagine how racy this would seem. Not that there's any, there's no nudity in the image or anything like that. It just would have seemed a lot more out there than I think we would think today. And the woman, the uh, Joy Kolodny, who's selling the house for her, her parents' estate said, you know, we moved in, my mother liked the basement and she never changed it. So here we are six decades later and it still looks the same. I don't know if I said they're asking 475,000. It has some other vintage features. It has a mirrored wall behind the fireplace on the first floor. It has 1950s metal cabinets in the kitchen repainted so they look good. Um, It has the thing I love best, the old 1930s, 1940s bathroom tile. I absolutely, I, I often tweet vintage bath of the week when I find one of those. So it looks old, but the, the important thing I think to keep in mind that she and I talked about is the, so it looks old, but it's not a dated, faded house. The utilities are up to date. She just replaced the air conditioner this year. The furnace is within the last few years. So if you're a vintage fan, you don't have to think, oh, I'm buying a wheezy old house that's going to fall down. Or if you're not a vintage fan and you remove all this historical stuff, please call me and I'll take it. Yeah, I was going to say, call Dennis and he will come take all of the vintage stuff off your hands for you. Exactly. Because it would be a shame to toss that. All right. Well, what's coming up in the week ahead, Dennis? Just before I started recording with you, I was crunching the numbers to see where home prices have risen the most in the city in the first half of 2023 and where they've fallen the most. We've been talking for months about the home prices falling in the city. That's citywide. This is neighborhood by neighborhood. Where have they gone up and where have they gone down in so far in 2023? Mm, I will look forward to talking about that with you this time next week. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, the White House asks Walgreens, CVS, and Walmart for help promoting its drug cost law. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Listeners of Crane's Daily Gist are invited to join good to great author Jim Collins for a one-day workshop in Chicago on October 17th at Navy Pier. This is a rare opportunity for CEOs and executive teams to spend a day with Jim Collins to understand the application of the good to great concepts and Jim's full body of work on what makes great companies tick. Limited places available. Go to growthfaculty.com to purchase tickets and learn more. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's Lee Gian Greco reported that the Sierra Club and the nonprofit Friends of the Chicago River intend to sue the Trump Organization, alleging that the Trump International Hotel and Towers discharge system has violated the federal Clean Water Act. Gian Greco noted in reporting that the two environmental groups served a notice of intent this week, claiming that the owners of the tower ran afoul of their National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System, or NPDES, permit by underreporting the rate at which the building withdraws water from the Chicago River. Gian Greco noted that Trump Tower uses the river for its cooling system and dumps heated water back into it. The practice is allowed if the building holds an NPDES permit, which is mandated by the Federal Clean Water 
contract. But according to the Sierra Club and Friends of the Chicago River, for more than a decade, the Trump Organization has underreported its flow rates to the Illinois Environmental Protection Agency by 44 percent. The latest legal action would mark the second suit filed by the Sierra Club and Friends of the Chicago River against Trump Tower in Chicago, following a 2018 case alleging similar violations against the Clean Water Act. In 2018, the Illinois Attorney General's Office also sued the Trump Organization over its state discharge permit after the Chicago Tribune revealed Trump Tower as the only Riverside high-rise that failed to report its water intake system to state and federal authorities. A Cook County judge later ruled that the tower indeed had violated state law by pumping river water without a permit. Crane's Brandon Dupre reported that the University of Chicago Booth School of Business has announced a new master's program designed for recent college graduates with limited work experience or traditional business training. The new 10-month master in management program is scheduled to welcome its first students in the fall of 2024, with applications opening in September. Booth said its full-time, part-time, and executive MBA programs typically train students who already arrive with what was described by the school as significant professional experience. But the new program is geared for graduates with limited work experience who studied humanities, arts, social sciences, biosciences, or physical sciences in college, and who are interested in jobs that value what was described as business-oriented skills and knowledge. That according to a press release from the school. Dupre noted in reporting that in the new program, students will learn the fundamentals of business and build on their critical thinking skills. Students will take five required courses in microeconomics, financial accounting, business decision modeling, behavioral foundations of management, and data analytics in addition to electives. Booth puts tuition for the new program at between $65,000 and $67,000 and expects merit scholarships to be available. Crane's John Pletz reported that tech startup Cameo laid off more than half its staff this week in the company's third round of cutbacks. Pletz reported, citing a source with knowledge of the cutbacks, that the company cut about 75 jobs and now has a little over 40 workers. Cameo originally soared on the popularity of its video shout-outs from celebrities, raising $100 million two years ago when it was valued at more than $1 billion. The business grew even faster in the early days of COVID, benefiting from people being at home during early stages of the pandemic that drove them to spend more time and money online. Employment peaked at nearly 400 workers early last year. But as Pletz noted, its fortune shifted as the pandemic began to wane and people started spending on travel, restaurants, and other things. Consumers also faced meaningful inflation for the first time in a generation. So growth has been hard to come by, even as the company expanded into new markets, such as offering celebrity video chats and business-to-business advertising. Like other startups, it's also facing a very different funding environment. Cameo raised capital near the peak of its last cycle when hedge funds and other investors lavished $100 million rounds on an ever larger pool of companies. Cameo joined a fast-growing herd of so-called unicorn companies valued at $1 billion or more. But as Pletz also noted, venture capital funding is more difficult to come by now, and investors are no longer willing to fund growth at any cost. Faced with the unappealing prospect of raising money at a lower valuation, venture-backed companies have been preserving cash, leading to cost-cutting actions such as layoffs. A source familiar with the company's financials told Cranes that Cameo still has money from previous fundraising. 
Bloomberg reported that Biden administration officials asked executives for major drug and retail chains to counter stiff opposition from the pharmaceutical industry and help promote a law intended to lower drug costs. U.S. health officials met Tuesday at the White House with leaders of CVS, Walgreens and Walmart seeking help to tout the benefits of the Inflation Reduction Act. That according to a Health and Human Services Department spokesperson. Along with capping insulin prices and expanding access to adult vaccines, the law will also allow Medicare to negotiate prices of costly drugs made by some of the biggest pharmaceutical companies. Bloomberg noted in reporting that the administration plans to push the act as a hallmark of President Biden's efforts to cut spending on medications. The drug price provisions have prompted a backlash from U.S. drug makers. Merck & Company, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Johnson & Johnson, and the industry's biggest lobby group are all suing the government over the law, alleging it violates the Constitution. In a letter sent to drug chains and pharmacy associations before Tuesday's meeting, White House Domestic Policy Advisor Neera Tandon, Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Becerra, and Medicare Administrator Chiquita Brooks-Lashur asked the executives to educate patients about the law and who's eligible for benefits. The companies were asked to message patients via social media and mention it on pharmacy materials like customer receipts and checkout kiosks. Bloomberg further noted that the contingent also asked for assistance promoting a program called Extra Help that lowers drug costs for low-income seniors and people with disabilities. Officials also asked the chains to direct patients to fill out forms for Medicaid coverage renewal. At least 2.75 million Medicaid recipients were dropped from the program as of July 17th, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, which tracks the unwinding of pandemic-era health measures. The spokesperson also said that the meeting was coordinated to precede the late-year launch of seasonal vaccination campaigns in the U.S. and the open enrollment period when those in the U.S. can adjust their health plans. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.